What is the greatest thing that has ever happened to you? Well, that's a great question. And there might be a myriad of answers. Some might answer getting married. That was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And, and, and of course, your spouse will be really happy to hear that. And, um, or maybe it was having a child, giving birth or standing by and watching uh, the whole process play out. Maybe it was graduating from college, rising out of poverty or something else along those lines. Those are all great things. They are things of great joy and happiness and even accomplishment. But still, the greatest thing that can happen to you or any person is becoming a Christian. Being saved by God. Or as Jesus put it in John chapter 3, being born again, born from above. Now, some have diminished this in their minds in practice. Maybe it's because they really don't understand what becoming a Christian means. What is it? What does it mean to be a Christian? For others, they don't like the vocabulary anymore. They don't like phrases like born again. They don't like terms like Christian. For a while there, there was a tremendous movement to do away with the term Christian and trade it out for the new en vogue and meaningful Christ follower. There is certainly nothing wrong with the term Christ follower, and for that matter, there's nothing wrong with the term Christian. Only that some have forgotten what a Christian is or what it means to become a Christian, or a Christ follower, if you like that term. A child of God, a citizen of heaven. Disciples of Jesus Christ were first called Christians in and around the town of Antioch. You can find it in the book of Acts chapter 11. They were called Christians, which means little Christ. And it was at first a derogatory term. It was a term meant to belittle, an insult. But ironically, it captures what it means to follow Christ. Romans 8.29, Paul put it this way to the church at Rome. You'll see it up on the screen. For whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Christ's disciples are being conformed to the image of Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're being made to be like Christ. You're being conformed into the image of Christ. And so in that regard, I don't really think the term Christian is really all that bad. I mean, it rather suits the believer in Christ, the Christ follower. This all started in the first century AD as Jesus called his first disciples and he fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophecies. And now 2,000 years later, the question needs to be asked. It needs to be looked at and studied. What is a Christian? What is a true Christian? And what is the Christian life? The answer should completely affect our lives as believers in Jesus, and it should revolutionize the world around us. Tonight, we begin a study of the epistles of the letters of one of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle Peter. Peter is one of the disciples that I think many can relate to. In fact, of all the disciples, Peter is the one that, in many ways, that we can all relate to because he was that one that, you know, just, he just did. He spoke when, when the opportunity was there and he did when the opportunity was there. He was one of those guys, if there was the opportunity to do something, he wanted to be first. He was the one that asked Jesus, hey, call me out of the boat. Let me walk on the sea with you. And, and, and for those in many reasons, I think many people can relate with Peter. He was real. He was passionate. He made mistakes. He said foolish things at times. But in the end, Jesus completely changed his life. Amen? Peter's letters told the first century followers of the way how to live for Christ in a world opposed to its precepts. I believe it also tells citizens of the 21st century how to do the same. So buckle up tonight. Buckle up. 
strap in. Tonight we begin to study from Peter's perspective and the Holy Spirit's heart what it means to be a 21st century Christian. Tonight we're going to look at the Christian life. What is it and how it should revolutionize my world. If you're taking notes, I have three points. The first one is this. The Christian life is transformational. The Christian life is transformational. So let's read 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 1, and we'll go ahead and read the entire text tonight, which is only two verses. Okay? So, amen. But don't, don't get too comfortable. But wait a second. I'm in Matthew. There we go. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. The Christian life is transformational. You want to know what the Christian life is? You want to study it? You want to look at it? Well, you can start here. The Christian life is transformational. Peter begins his letter with this salutation, this statement. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Everything about this salutation is a result of transformation. Amen? Everything that he says in the opening line of his epistle is about transformation. You see, Andrew had a brother, and his name was Simon. And one day, John the Baptist was standing there with two of his disciples, and Jesus walked nearby. And John said to his two disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God. So the two disciples there, that were there with John the Baptist, they kind of moved on and began to follow Jesus. They hurried up behind Jesus, and Jesus actually noticed that he was being followed, and he said, hey, what do you want? I'm paraphrasing here, okay? He says, what do you want? What, what do you seek? And he says, well, we want to see where you're staying. And he says, come along, come along. And so Andrew and this other disciple become disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, the text tells us that Andrew went to his brother Simon, and he said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So here is Andrew becoming a, a, a disciple. He's becoming a follower of Christ. And what does he do? He tells his brother. He tells his brother, and he says, hey, brother Simon, we found the Messiah. You got to come and check it out. And so he does, and see, he brings him to Jesus. And that's one of the great things that we can do in our lives is, is, is be a witness and, and bring people to Jesus, amen? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's somebody in the neighborhood. But we, we have that opportunity, amen? Just like Andrew. When, uh, let's look at verse uh, 42 of John chapter 1. That's where I'm, I've kind of been camping out there for a second. It says this. Now, when Jesus looked at him, Peter, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So this is what happens when Andrew follows Jesus. He brings his brother Simon to Jesus. Jesus looks at Simon and he says, You're Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which that is a, a form of the Aramaic kepha, which we know in the Greek, which is Petros, or as we know it, Peter. So one of the things that God does is when he walks into your life, when Jesus walks into your life, he transforms your life. He changes your life. He, he's going to transform. If you'll let him, God will transform your life. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. Now, in the Bible, God would change people's names to announce to them the transformation that he was going to do in them. God changed Abram to Abraham. He changed Sarai to Sarah. He changed Jacob to Israel. He changed Saul to Paul and here Simon to Peter. And so the change of the name 
becomes the marker of the transforming power that God is going to bring into the lives of the people that are going to follow him. There are those who change their names. I mean, changing your name is something that you can actually, you can go out and get a lawyer or something, you know, go to LegalZoom and fill out some paperwork on, on the internet or whatever and change your name. And today you're likely to see all kinds of strange names that people change their names to. Uh, I don't know if you remember Ron Artest. Uh, he was a basketball player for the Los Angeles Lakers. And Ron Artest, that, you know, pretty basic, you know, straightforward name. And if you'll remember, he changed his name to Meta World Peace. Yeah, remember that? He changed his name to Meta World Peace. And I watched a few Laker games during that time, and man, he was violent out there. He was known for throwing elbows and doing all kinds of stuff, and so it was a pretty interesting name change. The most wild name change that I could find on the internet, I mean, there is some crazy ones, was a young man over in Britain, and his name was George Garrett. And he changed his name to, and I quote, you can put it up on the screen, Captain Fantastic, Faster Than Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Wolverine, Hulk, and The Flash combined. Now, this is a, this is a serious news story that you can, you can look it up. You can fact check me right now, right? You all have smartphones. You can Google it. And you can fact check the preacher tonight. But this guy, George Garrett, changed his name to, I'm not even going to repeat it, okay? It's, it's just, it's, it's wild in terms of a name change. I mean, it's a mouthful. Now, I don't know how fast he was. I mean, you know, if you change your name to that, I, I would hope that you'd be like, you know, what's the guy down in Jamaica, Hussein Bolt? I mean, maybe he could go with that name or something and, 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 and pass. But, you know, if you're, if you're slow, I don't think it would work. <laughs> Anyways, back to Peter. Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. Now, it's interesting to look at the name, the, the, the name Simon and the names Peter, and just kind of take a look at, at those things that, that you see here. The Greek name Simon, see, when we read in the English, mostly what we're reading is, um, in terms of names, are Greek transliterations of uh, Aramaic names or Hebrew names and, and so on. And so we're looking at uh, Greek transliterations. So you have the Greek name Simon, which is also Simeon. So you have Simon, you have Simeon. And that name comes from, it actually derives from the Hebrew root word Shama, which is, which is the, the, you're familiar with your study in Deuteronomy, the, the Shema, the Shema, which means to hear. And it's, um, it, it means to hear, it means to hear, to pay attention. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, I believe, it's where God says, Hear, O Israel, Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so it's, it's kind of a call to hear the word Shema. It's a call to hear and it's a call to pay attention. And so Jesus changes his name from Simon, you know, hey, hear, pay attention, and he changes it to the Aramaic Kepha or Cephas, which means rock or stone. His name appears in the New Testament, again, in the Greek form. If you look at the Greek text, it would be Petros, and we know it as Peter. So Peter, I believe, becomes a witness for every man and woman. If you hear, if you pay attention, if you hear the voice of the master, if you hear his call and respond, he'll transform you. Amen? If you shema, you'll hear the Lord. If you're paying attention, you'll see what God wants to do in your life. And God is going to come in and he's going to transform your life. He's going to change you. The definition of transformational is this. It's the state of being transformed of or pertaining to change in form, appearance, nature, or character. Transformational. A transformation. So Peter was going to be transformed 
and the name change was just the beginning of it. It's just kind of setting the stage, setting the tone for the transformation that God was going to do in his life. Amen? Now, Peter was from Galilee. He had a Galilean accent. In Israel, it was the dreaded northern accent. You know, here in the U.S., we talk about a strong southern accent. You know, that southern draw. I, don't, I, I guess I don't know if I, I've never had one, really. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know how I sound to you. But, but you know, in terms of accents, I've always wanted a British accent. You know, if you could choose. Because I just think the British accent, it just, makes you, it just makes you sound a little smarter. Even Australian. Even Australian, you know, you hear those Aussies and all this, and they talk about this, and, you know, and it just sounds, it just comes off just a little bit more intelligent. But the Southern draw has been criticized for kind of coming off a little uneducated, a little soft, if you will. And in Israel, it was the Northern accent like that. It was the Galilean accent, and this is the accent that Peter would have had. Peter's northern accent gave him away at Jesus' trial. You'll remember and recall, you know, when Jesus had been arrested, and of course he was on trial, and there he was, and Peter had actually followed along, and there he found himself at the fire, warming himself. And of course, it had already, Jesus had already told him before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And, and there at the fire, there were those that called out to him. He had denied a couple times. Some uh, young lady had said, hey, aren't you a Christian? Aren't you a follower of Christ? He said, no, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 73, I'll throw it up on the screen for you. It says this, and a little later... Those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you, are, uh, uh, you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. And so here he is literally at the, at the trial of Jesus. Peter is actually being called down. He's being confronted over, over his northern Galilean accent. And it just, uh, here he is, yep, the Galileans, the Galilean disciples, they're all here to see what's going to happen to Jesus. And so you can just even sense as you're reading that passage, just kind of that same thing with the regard to accents and all the rest of it. Uh, but when Peter was reinstated, after his denial of Christ, and of course after the crucifixion and the resurrection, you have that scene where Peter is reinstated by Christ and he's commissioned into the, the uh, apostleship and the pastoral ministry, if you will. And, uh, and man, the, the transformation is amazing. Here you got a guy with a northern Galilean accent but after, when the transformation goes into full throttle after the resurrection and after the ascension and after God sends those guys out just to be, begin to do incredible things, you will remember in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John were on their way to the, to, to the temple and they were on their way to the, through the gate beautiful and there was the man that was crippled and, and, and he called out to, to Peter and John, hey, give me something, give me something, I need something. And you know the story. Peter says, look, you know, silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and be healed. And the story goes on that that man was, was healed, that he began to run, he began to leap and run and praise God. And it opened up a window of opportunity right there in the temple courts to, to just bring forth a powerful message of the, the name of Jesus Christ and salvation that can be found in no other name. And of course, Peter and John are arrested for the commotion and, the, and the, what, everything that has been stirred up. They spend the night in jail. They're called in, in front of the Sanhedrin, the council, the Jewish council. And this is what is recorded for us in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. You'll see it on the screen. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Do you see what is being recorded for us here? The transformation that has is taken root in the life of Peter. Here he is, this fisherman, Simon, 
and he's called to follow Jesus. Jesus changes his name and he brings him all the way to where he's standing before people proclaiming the name of Christ. Amen. They realized, they marveled. They realized that he had been with Jesus. You know when you hang out with Jesus and Jesus changes you? Man, you can come across a lot smarter than you really are. Amen? People will marvel. People will marvel. People look at the, look at what God's done with him. We never saw it coming. No one could have predicted it. But look, man, he, he, he's been hanging out with Jesus. Hanging out with Jesus will make you a smart man, a smart woman. Make a smart person out of anyone. Peter had listened to, eaten with, traveled alongside Jesus for three years. I believe he had what's called a master's degree. Amen? <laughs> he had a master's degree. Three and a half years with Jesus. That's a master's degree as far as I'm concerned. Amen? Wow. What would it do in our lives and the transformation that God wants to bring into our lives? You know... You take, a southern, you take a northern Galilean accent and, and the handicap that that may have been. You know, you look at the, the, the people in the Bible, you know, many of them had different handicaps. You know, Moses had a stutter. He tried to talk God out of the call on his life. He said, you got the wrong guy. He said, no, I got the right guy. No, I know who made you and I know who made that mouth of yours. And so whatever it is, just we need to give our lives to Jesus and see what God's going to do in our life. See how he's going to use us, how he's going to transform our lives to just bring a blessing to those around us, to transform us from the inside out. As we spend time with Jesus, he works on the transformation. As we spend time with the Lord, he's working on the transformation. You know, a lot of Christians today, they wonder, what in, the what in the world is the Lord doing in my life? That's a question that a lot of people have. Christians have been going to church all these years, and, you know, they've been, you know, doing the whole thing. And they say, what in the world is, is, is Jesus doing in my life? What's God doing in my life? It's a good question. He's doing a transformation. That's what he's doing. They say, no, no, no. I want the real answer. <laughs> Give me the, I want, you know, I pull, I don't know why, someone in my neighborhood has been putting um, signs uh, uh, to go see a psychic, like right on the corner. And I, I said this one day as we passed, I wonder if they would know if I took the sign down. If I, I wonder if they would know that I would have done that. And then I show up for the service and say, oh, by the way, I took your sign down. No, anyways. People want to know. People want to know what in the world is God doing with their lives. And the answer is this. God is doing a transformation in your life. And he's using every little thing in your life, every circumstance. He's working in all those things to bring about a transformation, to bring about this process of transformation in your life. And so what happens is Christians go through this, this situation, they go through this situation, and they begin to look at tough situations that are going on in their lives. And there's two ways that you can go with that. You can look at a tough circumstance, you can say, where's God in all this? What in the world is God doing in my life? Or the Christian perspective, what is it that you're doing in my life, God? How is it that you're going to bring me closer to you? How is it that you're going to bring me deeper with you? How is it that you're going to do something that is going to be a praise report through this situation? How is it that you're going to use this situation in my life and in the lives of the people around us? And, and, and for the Christian, we need, to, we need to, to, to grow up a little bit and realize, what is God doing in my life? He's bringing about a transformation. That's what he does. He walks into people's lives and he says, hey, Simon, guess what? Your name's Petros now. 
That's what he does. And he begins to walk you through the entire process until one day when we stand before him and the apostle John says, when we see him, we will be like him. And it'll be complete at that point. And Paul told us in the first chapter of Philippians, he says, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So the next time someone asks you, and it's a Christian, and they're asking you, what in the world is God up to? What is he doing? You can tell him. God is working a transformation in your life, and you've got to look at the circumstance and the situation. This is right in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Look it up. We have to move on, but you look it up and read Hebrews 12. Look at what's going on in your life as the very discipline of God bringing about the transformation and the righteousness that God wants to see in your life. Amen? Man, that's good stuff right there. That's the type of stuff Christians need to hear today. Because, because there's, there's, there's all this stuff and all this stuff. And meanwhile, people are going through all these things and wanting to know, where is God in all of it? And God's right smack dab in the middle of it. And if you'll pay attention, if you'll hear, if you'll know what God's up to, because he's up to two things, basically. God is, I've said this for years now. He's, God is basically up to two things. He's building you, transforming you, and he's building his church. So if you ever wonder what in the world God's doing, that's what he's doing. You wake up in the morning, what's on tap, God? Well, I'm still building my church, and I'm still transforming you. And the rest is all for the glory of God. Amen? Wow, I got lost deep within this point here. The Christian life is transformational. Amen? It's transformational. Jesus made Peter a Galilean fisherman, turned him into an apostle. He made him a fisher of men. Amen? What is he doing with us? He's transforming us. We're going from glory to glory. Amen? Some Christians are going from question to question. But if you know what God's up to, you can go from glory to glory. Amen? It doesn't matter what curveball this world may bring. We, we know how to look at it. We know how to have the right perspective. Amen? Secondly tonight, and i got to hurry. The Christian life is transitional. Let's look back at chapter 1, verse 1 there. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The Christian life is transitional. Peter addresses this letter to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, all those, all those areas. Now, the word pilgrim here, when we read it in English, we, we, read, we read the word pilgrim, we hear pilgrim. My mind goes to, to, to two places immediately. It goes to Thanksgiving. <laughs> Amen. You hear pilgrim, Thanksgiving, time for some turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy and stuffing and all that stuff and cranberry sauce too. Amen. That's Thanksgiving. And pumpkin pie with just loaded up with whipped cream. I mean, covered, covered. I mean, that's why, that's why we're on a diet right now, because it's January the 9th. Amen? Where was I? Oh, Thanksgiving. And the other one that just kind of just randomly pops in there, you know, because I, I, I am kind of, I, I straddle the generations a little bit, is John Wayne, right? <laughs> Pilgrim, pilgrim. <laughs> you know, I can't do I can't do a John Wayne. Come on. He's way back. That's way back there. Now the word pilgrim in the English, it, it, it's a word that means it has this sense of um, someone that's on a journey. On a journey for worship on a journey uh, for religious freedom. Certainly the pilgrims that came to land at Plymouth, Massachusetts, were those type of pilgrims. They were on a journey seeking the religious freedom that they, that they wanted. And so we say pilgrim and we have that sense, a journey to worship. I, I want to suggest this, that the New King James, which is the version that I read out, maybe you're sitting there going, where is, it? where is he getting this pilgrim? I don't have no NKJV. Well, good for you tonight. <laughs> good for you tonight. <laughs> 
Because I looked it up in all the translations. The NRS, the the ESV, the NASB, the NASB 95. I looked it up in all the translations. There's 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 a few different words that the translators used for this word to put it into English. And one of the words is is exiles. How many have exiles? Okay, nobody has that translation. Okay, next. How many have strangers? No? Okay. All right, well, we'll just keep moving, all right? Pilgrim, exile, strangers. Just go ahead on the count of two. Just call out what you have there. One, two, go. Pilgrims? Okay. Huh? Foreigner. Temporary resident. Now we're on to something. The word here in the Greek is the word paradimios. And just don't... I'm I'm not a Greek scholar, okay? I don't know how to pronounce these words. But it is better translated. This word in the Greek is better translated here as exile, strangers, foreigner even. And it means this, one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives, a stranger, sojourning in a strange place, a foreigner, in the New Testament, a metaphor in reference to heaven as the native country, one who sojourns on the earth. And so Peter writes this letter to Christians who are in reality strangers now living in those foreign lands. Strangers, exiles. And this is what we need to see in our own lives. The Christian life is transformational, but it's also transitional. Because we've, been go- we've, we've gone from being a person of the earth to being a person of heaven. And we're on that journey, we're on that pilgrimage, if you want to use that word, and we're exiles, we're strangers, we're foreigners in a foreign land here on the earth. And so we need to see, the Christian needs to see, we need to, we need to put this on our minds, we need to put it in our hearts, we're strangers in this place. And because we're strangers, we're not going to feel at home. We're not going to feel comfortable with everything that the world does. And if the more and more that we feel comfortable with the things that the world is doing and the solutions and the plans and the things that they want to do, we should, we should take a double check to see where our focus is, if our focus is on the transition of that we become citizens of heaven or if we're still loving the world and we're still in allegiance with the world, we still love the ways of the world because as God is working this transformation, he's also bringing us along a transition from being an earth dweller to a citizen of heaven, and one day we'll be with him forever and ever and ever. Amen? So the Christian is in transition. The definition of transitional is this, having to do with movement, passage, or change from one position, state, stage, subject, concept, etc., to another. And so really, we need to be seeing ourselves as Christians. The Christian life is transitional. We need to see that we're like we're in transit. Amen. We're we're foreigners, we're exiles, we're strangers. And we're we're folks, look, we're not gonna be feeling more comfortable. We're gonna I'm 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 it's safe to say I think we're gonna feel less and less comfortable. And especially as as the day draws near. Amen. And I look at some people that you know. You know, and this isn't always the case, but sometimes there are people that, that God takes from us too soon. And by too soon, I mean, you know, way too soon in their life. And, and the only explanation I, I've come up with with certain people is that, man, they were just ready to go on to be with Jesus. I mean, it's just like an Enoch type of thing. I mean, they walked with Jesus and he was no more for God took him. And, and the more that we are following Christ, the more that we're loving Jesus, the more that we're spending time, we're going to realize that that we're in transition, that we're exiles and strangers in this world. And 
And here's what Peter is saying. He's saying to the pilgrims, to the strangers, to the foreigners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, so we're strangers, we're, we're foreigners, and here's what Peter is saying as he's opening his letter. And the question is, well, where did he get this? I mean, is he on the right track? I mean, is, he, is Peter correct here? Well, yeah, because we can look and find out exactly where he got this from. He got it from Jesus. Jesus taught them this. Jesus taught the twelve that they weren't of this world anymore. Look at that. Jesus taught them uh, in John 15, 19. This is the context is the upper room. Uh, Jesus says this, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So here's the first century Christian. The first century Christian, the first century disciple is being told, you are not of this world, I chose you out. You were of this world, but I chose you out of this world, and you are no longer of this world. You are of the kingdom of heaven, and I'm going to do something great in your life. And because of it, because of the stance that you're going to take for the kingdom, the world is not going to like it. The people around you are not going to like it. The world is not going to like it. But we're not of this world. The problem for many is that they want to belong to the world. They want to belong to the world. And, you know, if you're caught in this trap, it's a trap of wanting to belong to the world. Now, I, I will admit, when God blesses and God brings all kinds of wonderful things here on the earth, you can say, hey, this is great. Let's just, just stay here. Let's do this. This is wonderful. Don't change a thing. You know, let's let this let's let's enjoy this. And you know what? When God does that, I think it's a it's an open invitation for us to enjoy the blessing of God. Amen. Because he does want to bless his people. But I think the the problem is that we can love that earthly blessings too much to where we get comfortable with that. And we lose sight of of you know, really realizing we're, we're just passing through here. We're exiles and strangers, aliens who don't belong, and we're passing through to the next place. If you, if you don't mind, let me read. Let me read. Uh, I, I want to do this because I, 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 I'm just so fond of this. The lyrics to a song that is, I don't know, it's 30, going on 30 years old. But it's by a, by a Christian band named Petra. Remember those guys? And they, they wrote a song on this concept. It's called Not of This World. And um, anyways, here's the, here's the song. It says, we are pilgrims in a strange land. We're so far from the homeland. With each passing day, it seems so clear. This world will never want us here. We're not welcome in this world of wrong. We are foreigners who don't belong. The chorus. We're strangers. We are aliens. We are not of this world. Verse 2, we are envoys. We must tarry. With this message, we must carry. There's so much to do before we leave with so many more who may believe. Our mission here can never fail and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus told us men would hate us, but we must be of good cheer. He has overcome this world of darkness. Soon we will depart from here. We're not of this world. Amen? Now, there's a lot of talk about aliens and strangers these days and, and um, when it comes to, uh, you know, the illegal aliens. I'm not, I'm not talking about sci-fi, you know, I'm talking about the illegal aliens. Stay with me, folks. <laughs> Stay with me. That's another discussion. Well, no, let me, let me, let me go to that point. The, 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 the extraterrestrials. <laughs> E.T. Um, the definition of extraterrestrial life is defined. Um, this is the Wikipedia definition. Life which does not originate from planet Earth. The existence of such life is theoretical 
and all assertions about it remain disputed. <laughs> I'm here to dispute it, amen? I'm here to dispute it, and here's why. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. We are not born in the spirit from this place. We are born from another place. We are born again from above. The term born again means to be born from above by the Father. And we are, well, we're extraterrestrials, folks. <laughs> E.T. phone home. Man, this is fun. We're born of the Father, the Spirit of God, who is from outside of the earth in heaven. And he's given birth to you in the Spirit. Amen? He's your heavenly Father. He's your heavenly Father. So what, we, what should we do? What should we do? One more point. And then I'm going to have to take all my allotted time tonight. You know, if it was a debate, I'd say, I'm going to, I'm not going to, what do they do in Congress? I, I, I transmit my time back to the, to the gentleman from, you know, South Carolina. No, I'm going to keep my time, okay, tonight. Um, where was I? What should we do if we're strangers, if we're pilgrims? Uh, Peter will cover this in chapter 2. You'll see it up on the screen. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul. To, to be in this transitional phase, to be in this transition, to just kind of embrace that and use that to, to abstain from the, the fleshly lusts that want to tear us down and take us away from that transformational process that God is working in our lives. Amen? So let's, let's move on to the last point. Let's move on to the last point. First, the Christian life is transformational. Second, the Christian life is transitional. Does anyone have a guess? The Christian life is theological. The Christian life is theological. Let's pick it up, verse 2. It says this, Elect to the pilgrims, to the sojourners, to the exiles, to the strangers, to the foreigners, who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. The Christian life is theological. Now the word theological or theology really throws some people. You, you, you bring up the word theology, you bring up the word the, theological, and people are just like, nope, that's where I check out. I don't, I don't get into that theology stuff. I don't, get, I don't have any Bible degrees. I don't get into that theology, theological stuff. But I want to make you more comfortable with it tonight. Amen? I want to make you more comfortable with theology and the word theological. Because you are a theologian. Whether you realize it or not, you are a theologian. Everyone you and I know has a theology, a viewpoint about God. Every single person that you and I know has a theology, a viewpoint about God. Some say, some people's theology is this, God doesn't exist. They say God does not exist, and that makes them an atheist. An atheist is someone who is, says, you know, God is not there. there. There is no such thing as God. And that's their theology. When it comes to the theology, it's like it's, it's one sentence. God does not exist. Of course, you know, they have to make a defense of that position. Other people you may know say they take the theological position, I don't know whether or not. God exists. And that theological position is, is called agnosticism. It's, it's a person who's agnostic. It's actually from a word, gnostic is to know. Ah, in front of anything, means not. So it's actually not to know. So if you're an agnostic, you're just basically saying, I don't know if there is a God or not. 
And, and of course, then that's their theological position. And for those who believe in God, believe God is real, they all have their theology too. And this runs the full spectrum of all kinds of beliefs and theories about God. And so, again, I said earlier, everybody is a theologian in one way or another. You have a theology about God. And you see all these people that believe in God, and they have, again, it's the full spectrum of all, all ideas and concepts and things written in books and all, all, all kinds of different stuff. But let me tell you this. The more that I've studied the Bible, I've come to understand the truth. I've come to understand this truth. That there are things that you believe about God that are not true. I have come to that, I have come to that belief, that position. I have come to believe that there are things that you, co- that you come to believe about God that later on you realize, well, that wasn't true about God. Um, So there are things that maybe you've been taught in your upbringing. There are different people that come and go that come from way out different backgrounds. Different, you know, I mean, if you you, you were brought, like let's say somebody was brought up in Mormonism and, you know, God is, you know, from the the, the planet, you know, Kolob or whatever. I mean, that's all a part of their theology. And on and on and on and on it goes across the full spectrum of people that would say, I believe that there is a God. Um, And that's why I believe that it's so important as Christians that we need to be people of the Word and people who study the Word because it is the Word that is where we need to be getting our theology from. Amen? We need to be getting our theology. Well, what is theology? Theology is just the revelation of God. It's, It's... knowing who God is. It's studying God. It's the study of God, really, is what it is. And it's really, and I like this definition, it's the revelation of God to man about who he is, what he's done, and what his will is for the world. So that's why it's so important that we look into the Word as a Christian to get our theology from the Word of God, the Bible, because the Word of God is truth. Amen? The Word of God is the truth. And Jesus prayed for you. On the night that he was arrested, Jesus prayed for you. Did you know that? He prayed for you, and this is one of the things that he prayed for you. In John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. So the thing that Jesus prayed for you on the night that he was arrested was that you would be set apart in your life by the Word of God because the Word of God is the truth. And that you would be set apart and marked by the truth in your life. And so this is what it really means to, to follow Christ and to, and to be a Christian. Amen? So let me take a look very briefly, and I've just got a couple more minutes to roll through these last three theological points that are so important and so pivotal for the life of the believer. The first one is this. The Christian, are you ready for the three theological points that you can tuck away and you can add to your theological arsenal, all right? The Christian is elect according to the foreknowledge of of the Father. The Christian is elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Basically what this is saying, Peter is saying that Christians are elect the word is ekletos in the Greek. It literally means to pick out. It has the, pre- the, the prefix ek, which is out, and it's literally to pick out or to choose. And uh, you can even see a similarity to the church, which actually is ekklesia, which actually means called out. So a, a, an individual Christian is picked out, chosen. The church is called out, and that's what it means to be a Christian, and this is all according to the foreknowledge of the Father. It's according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Now, what is foreknowledge? Foreknowledge, now you're sitting there going, you got two minutes left, and you're going into foreknowledge? Are you kidding me? Right? (laughs) 
foreknowledge, the best as I understand it, is to say that God knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And he knows he's the first and the last. He's the alpha and the omega. He was there in the beginning. He's the end too. And so everything he knows. He knows what's going to happen. And he knows, he knew before the foundation was laid to the earth, he knew who was going to choose him, who was going to come to him, who was going to bow the knee as he was choosing them, as he was ekleptos, as he was calling them, picking them out. He knew who was going to bow the knee. And so in the foreknowledge of the Father, he called you out of the world. Whoa, this is some amazing stuff. Theology is fun, folks. Theology is fun. God knew, and and this is all done by the Father. This choosing, this election. We're we're 2016, right? We've got an election that's coming up, right? No, we've had an election. (laughs) We've been elected, amen? We've been chosen by the Father, The the heavenly father picked you out and brought you into his family. Amen. And that's a little theological nugget that you want to put up there right into your heart and your spirit and your mind. Amen. Okay. Number two, moving on. The Christian is being sanctified by the spirit. Look at that. Verse two, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in sanctification of the spirit for obedience. We're justified when we come to Christ. Justification says all your sins are gone. Sanctification is then the process of your life becoming obedient to the Word of God and His commands. You're justified when you come into Christ, you step into Christ, you're completely justified. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned at all. Sanctification is the process that the, the Spirit is working in your life to bring you more and more into obedience to the will of God and the commands of God. And this is happening by the Spirit. The word sanctification is the Greek word hagiosmos, and it means this, consecration, purification, the effect of consecration, sanctification of heart and life. This is what the Spirit is doing in your life. If you are cooperating with the Spirit, if you are submitted to the will of the Lord, the Spirit wants to work a hagiosmos. He wants to bring you, he brings sanctification into your life. He wants to bring it into your life for obedience. The, word, the root word here is hagios, which is actually holy, set apart. What he's doing is he's setting us apart. We're being set apart for him. We're being, we're being chosen. We're being called out. We're being set apart. God is doing so many amazing things that we need to realize as Christians what in the world God is doing, and it's an incredible thing. Yes, you wonder what's going on in your life? This is all what's going on in your life. You're being sanctified. Now you have to be sanctified for obedience. So what happens to a lot of Christians is they don't don't learn the point of obedience and discipline that they are receiving. Here the Spirit is bringing along a point of sanctification, and they're just not paying attention. They're not shamaying. You know, they're not hearing. They're not paying attention. And we're just going on. And here the Spirit is working sanctification in our lives for obedience, and people are not paying attention not cooperating with the Spirit. And so they're going around in circles learning the same point, the same point, the same point. And God wants to bring, by His Spirit, sanctification into your life for obedience. Amen? Sanctification is what's happening in the Christian life here on earth. We can talk all about what's going to happen in heaven. There's wonderful things that are going to happen in heaven. Heaven is going to be, a, is, is going to be incredible. What's going on here, on here on the earth is called sanctification. That's what's going on here in the life of the Christian. So get on board. Stop kicking against the goads. Put on your sanctification, paying attention hat and let the Holy Spirit bring sanctification in your life for obedience. Amen? Sanctification is done by the Spirit. Election is by the Father. Sanctification is by the Spirit. Number three, 
the Christian is sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son. Amen? The sprinkling of blood was something that took place according to the law. Blood would be sprinkled. In the Old Testament law, the sacrifice would be brought, the, 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 the sacrifice would be made, the animal would be killed, the blood would be spilt, the blood would then be sprinkled. In, in various different sacrifices, the blood would be sprinkled in certain ways. The atoning sacrifice, the blood would be spilled, and the high priest would bring the, the, the blood of the atoning animal into the Holy of Holies, and there on the mercy seat would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat seven times. Seven times blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, also, there were three occasions, three circumstances in the Old Testament where blood was sprinkled directly on people. In that occasion, blood was sprinkled seven times on the, on the throne of God, on the, on the mercy seat. Three, three occasions where blood was sprinkled directly on people. At the establishment of Sinai, the, the, the covenant, when the covenant was established, the reference there is Exodus 24, beginning at verse 5. The second time is that the ordination of Aaron and his sons, as Aaron the high priest and his sons were consecrated for the Levitical priesthood, blood was sprinkled upon them. And at the purification ceremony for a cleansed leper. And you can see where all that's going. And I don't have time to just go nuts unpacking all that. But you can see it. Amen? Now, back to the atoning work. The sprinkling of blood is the cleansing of blood, the blood of Jesus in the life of the Christian. The, the blood was sprinkled seven times on the mercy seat. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. Christian, you've been sprinkled, and your sprinkling is complete. Amen? Your sprinkling is perfect. Amen? You may fall, you may fail, but the work of Christ will never fail. You've been sprinkled, and you've been sprinkled to perfection and to completion in Christ. Amen? Now, the word here for sprinkling is the word rontismos. Rontismos. Sprinkling. And the word sprinkling here, and, 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 and look, I just got some really fancy Bible softwares, okay? So, so I'm not trying to show off here or anything, okay? By any means. But the word here, rontismos, is it, it's in the accusative tense. You say, I mean, come on, it's, it's, it's 8 o'clock, it's dinner time, we got to get out of here, whatever. It's in the accusative tense, which in that case, that it... it which is the case that marks the direct object of a verb and some prepositions. Accusative, it's the direct object. This is the direct object that's being sprinkled. The sprinkling. It's accusative. But it's also in the singular. It's also in the singular. So it's directly towards the people that are elect. The people that have been elect have been directly sprinkled but it's also in the singular, and that means you. Christian, that you have been sprinkled and, 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 and in perfection and completion. And I think you could take it one step further and say, you know, in that sense, you're a sprinkled one. <laughs> You've been sprinkled. You're a sprinkled one. Now, I'm not, this isn't a Catholic thing, like sprinkling with water and baptism. No, no, no. This is, this is you've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ in completion and perfection. And this is what we need to remember as we're walking through our lives because sometimes we have bad days. Sometimes stuff doesn't go right and sometimes we don't feel like we're the sprinkled ones. But we need to realize it. We need to realize that we're the sprinkled ones. We've been, Mary Jo used to sing a song when I first met her. She used to sing this song, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? And we are the sprinkled ones. Amen? And this is done by the Son, Christ Jesus. Election is by the Father. Sanctification by the Spirit. The sprinkling by Jesus Christ's blood. 
And not only was it by his blood, but he's the one that did the sprinkling. I said, what? Yeah, because let me finish up with this point, if you're still with me. Raise your hand if you're still with me. Okay, Every, everybody but like two people. No, I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is our high priest and that he performed his priestly duties of sprinkling the elect of the Father with his own blood, and this is what has happened. And you're like, this is who, this is what it is, the Christian life. This is what has happened in your life. And so you're sprinkled. This is the state of being that you are as a Christian, that you live out your life you're sprinkled. You've been cleansed, and you have, and also it was the sense of having literally the very life of Christ sprinkled on you. This is a powerful truth. This is a powerful truth, but I've, I've not only run out of time, but I've had to borrow time from next week. I'm, I'm on borrowed time now. And there were no other preachers that I could have borrowed. Maybe I can borrow some time from the guy down the street. <laughs> In closing, becoming a Christian is the best thing that you could ever do that could happen to you that has happened in your life. The Christian life, it's transformational. The Christian life, it's transitional. The Christian life... It's theological. 